The, um, so the history of the, code of, of the 1983 code is something uh, you need to be aware of, not, not in a lot of detail. I'm going to give you some of the, the highlights of the revision process. It was a very long, uh, very complicated, very thorough revision process. It's, it's just amazing how they did this. Uh, so careful. Uh, and some great saints behind this. Um, this is the uh, St. John XXIII and uh, 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 St. St. John Paul the Great, as we call it. Um, uh, St. Paul VI um, had to wait. Uh, and we'll, we'll explain that in a minute. So, all right, so January 25th, 1959, the big day, the big announcement, Second Vatican Council culminating with the revision of the Code of Canon Law. Right? Um, then uh, John the 23rd, as you know, he died before the, um, uh, before the council was, was completed. And shortly before he died, um, in March 1963, he set up a commission into, uh, to take charge of the revision of the code. All right, so 1959, can you hear me all right? Everybody hear me all right? Okay, so 1959, he announces the revision of the code. Then 1963, um, he uh, constitutes the commission. But they decided, for obvious reasons, I think, um, to wait to do their work until the, um, the, the, uh, the Second Vatican Council was over, because their work was all going to come from the Second Vatican Council. So they just, uh, they just waited. Um, they didn't really begin their work until the following November, 1965, a few days before um, before the end of the council. So they began in 65. Now, uh, you don't have to know this in detail, but I want you to get the broad uh, picture of, of, of what was happening. Um, so uh, this commission was composed of uh, all these cardinals and bishops, right? Um, and they, they divided the, the work that had to be done into different uh, topics and so forth. So, um, so they had, um, uh, so in addition to the bishops and the cardinals, they had uh, consultants. So these would be people who would be expert in canon law, who would be um, divided into these different study groups for each subject, right? Um, and it was Paul VI who, um, who set up the, the, the objectives and so forth, directions for each of these uh, of these uh, study groups, okay. Um, so this is how careful they were to keep everything on track, to keep everything unified. They had one set of guiding principles that everyone was supposed to follow, right? And it was organized in ten points. I, you don't have to know this in detail. You'll go crazy. Um, it just it's kind of telling you how this went. This is uh, developed. It, it was organized into ten points and presented for approval to the Synod of Bishops in 1967, right? Um, and the, these guiding principles were taken from the teachings of the council, right? Um, then, so using these principles that they read on, um, and then they, uh, and taking the, the, the canons of the 1917 code as their starting point, um, these study groups in the uh, mid-1970s now, developed a partial um, schemata to complete the new code. So, um, so all these schemata are, uh, have become, become famous. 
you have these schema. Well, schema is the singular, right? Schemata is plural. Um, they had these 10 partial schemata um, for the uh, revision of the code in, the, in these, uh, these 10 different uh, subject areas. For instance, um, you know, sacraments and um, uh, basic uh, principles of canon law, um, penal law, the teaching office of the church, all these different areas. Uh, they had these partial schemata, right? Um, so they worked on these in the mid-1970s, between 72 and 77. And then they sent these partial schemata to all the bishops of the world, to all the dicasteries of the Roman Curia, and to all the pontifical faculties of canon law, uh, so that they can present their observations and proposals. Right, so um, this is how careful they were. So this is all partial work. They sent it to everybody, all the bishops in the world, um, all the, the pontifical universities, um, and all the uh, dicasters of the Roman Curia, right? Um, so then they got many, many responses, many, many proposals. You know, <coughs> these are all sent now to these groups of consultants. Um, and the result of this was they put all of this together, and um, they came up with the, um, uh, the schema of 1980. Okay, so the schema of 1980. Again, you don't need to know this. I just, just want, to, want you to know the, how thorough this process was. The schema of 1980. Um, and then um, <clears throat> this was presented to the Holy Father, right? To, um, uh, and then he submitted it uh, for study to the commission again. Uh, and at that point, the commission had 74 members on it. So a lot of people were involved in this, right? So then they all made, these members of the commission all made their amendments and suggestions. Um, and then um, the, secretary, the secretary of the commission put all this together. And uh, then he sent, um, he's, in response to all of these, he sent them a response called a relatio. You, you don't have to do this. I just want you to know. Uh, see how this goes, you know. So he sent them uh, a response called the relatio. Uh, responding to each of their suggestions, objections, and everything else. Um, then um, this relatio was discussed in a plenary session of the commission. Um, then they uh, introduced amendments and modifications. And the result of all of that was the schema of 1982. So you have the schema of 1980, now you have the schema of 1982. Then, and this is very interesting, um, St. John Paul the Great reviewed the, the proposed code twice, the whole thing, all right? So you might get tired of reading this. He went through the whole thing twice. Um, first, he had a group of experts, and then the second group was uh, three cardinals. Um, so this group of experts, all right, so, so this went on for months, and he would meet 
however often it was, over breakfast or what it was, with this group of experts. Um, and one of these experts on this small group, we're talking about, I think it was about half a dozen um, experts in canon law, right? Um, and one of them who met with the Holy Father every day, uh, or however long this took, for, for months, and went, they went over every comma, every semicolon, everything, uh, was one of the foremost um, English-speaking candidates in the world. He was, he was on the Sacred Roman Rota, and he was um, uh, and he was a professor of canon law as well. He was, he was well known, very distinguished. Um, the Pope called him his canon law professor. Uh, he was a uh, canon lawyer uh, by the name of Monsignor Edward Egan. So that's how that happened. <laughs> so he ended up here. Um, he used to tell us stories about uh, about meeting with the Holy Father, you know. But but the Holy Father called him his canon law professor. You know? So um, he actually learned something from me once. There's there something he didn't know, a new development in Canada that he didn't know about that I, I was able to tell him. So it was uh, marriageable. So, um, but he was uh, he was a brilliant man. Um, and um, anyway, I'm not going to get into all that. But and just just so you know, so we had a the New York had an intimate connection with this whole process. So um, this group of experts, including the senior Edward Egan, uh, went over, it, and then this group of uh, three cardinals went over it, and finally. The definitive text of the Codex Juris Canonici was realized and promulgated on January 25, 1983. Okay, so it was announced by uh, St. John the 23rd on January 25, 1959, and it was um, 24 years later, January 25, 1983, when it was finally uh, promulgated. Okay, that's how long it took. That's how careful they were. I mean, they were really, really careful. Every single comma uh, they went over with at length. They went over it uh, at length. Um, okay. Um, and I think all right. That's 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 really enough on that. And then. Um, And then um, there's more that makes up the, the, uh, the law of the church. This is only for the Western church, for the, for the Roman church. Right? Um, what about all of the Eastern Catholic churches? We'll get into this a little bit uh, as soon as we begin studying the code itself. Uh, there are 21 Eastern Catholic churches. We're not talking about Eastern Orthodox. We're talking about Eastern Catholic churches. Right? Um, they needed a law as well. Right? So they're... Um, uh, so work was begun on uh, for the uh, revision of the uh, law for the Eastern churches, and they began uh, to develop common code uh, for all the Eastern churches. There are 21 of them. We'll get into all this later. Uh, in 1929, so they came up, up with four partial texts. They went through a similar revision process as happened for the Western code. Uh, there was a commission for the Eastern code. Um, and, find, and there, there, there were um, there were schemata and so forth, 
And finally, they came up with the, um, the code of, of canon law for the Eastern churches. And it was, oh, Codex Canonum Ecclesiarum Orientalium. or CCEO. That was promulgated on, on October 1st, 1990. So just remember CCEO, um, the Code of, of Canon Law for the Eastern Churches. And what this was is it's one code but it is applied to 21 different churches. So each of those churches, these are Eastern Rite Catholic churches, uh, then had to develop its own uh, canons, its own canon law based on this, all right? So you have the CIC, alphabet soup here, right? The CIC uh, 83, right? That's West, the, uh, the Codex Juris Canonici, that's for the Western church, uh, the churches, um, basically the Roman church, right? And then you have the CCEO for all the Eastern churches. Okay. Um, okay. Then um, I think that's all we need to get. Uh, there's more to it than this. Um, uh, th there is, um, for instance, special laws for the Roman Curia. You know, um, and. Uh, um, then there's special laws for the um, election of the Roman Pontiff. Um, these tribunals that I spoke of before, the Rhoda and the Apostolic Signatura. Um, there, there are special laws for the, um, the Synod of Bishops they're talking about now, and especially uh, uh, the, there are special laws for the causes of canonization. There are, um, there have always been particular laws for particular Areas. So each diocese could have its own particular laws in addition to the universal laws contained in the Code of Canon Law and elsewhere, right? Um, so uh, this, um, these, these texts in particular, the, um, the, the, the Eastern uh, Code and the Western Code, uh, would be the basis for, uh, for Canon Law in the Church. But there's other law that comes into being all the time. Uh, it just goes on and on. So we're continuing the process that began um, in, in the first century. It just it just goes on. That's the life of the church. Okay. Um, but in order to get anywhere, you need to know the code at least. Right. Um, okay. Good. Then. We have a little bit of time remaining, we have about half an hour. So, um, you all have a code by now? You all have, you know, copy of code here. I don't have it on me, but oh, I have. Okay. 
Yeah, you, unfortunately, you need, you'll need to bring it. You know? um, and um, if you just open it, every, does everybody have this? Does anyone have the other one? Everyone has this, right? Okay. All right. Um, if you uh, if you open to the um, basically the table of contents. easier in, in, in this edition because um, uh, it's, it's really spread out here because they have um, they have all of the uh, authors listed for each section and so forth um, but basically this Roman numeral Roman numeral three right? so um, you have, well, why don't we just look at the basic books, first of all. Um, so book one that we're going to be spending a certain amount of time on uh, is just called General Norms. Yeah, we can look at that a little bit now. So, um, so General Norms, and we'll get into, there's a general introduction, then we'll get into the whole notion of ecclesiastical laws, and we'll see what those are, and custom that I've already mentioned. Um, then uh, general decrees and instructions, singular administrative acts, um, things, we'll get into these, re what restrips are and privileges and dispensations. Um, we won't worry about statutes and rules of order, but physical and juridic persons, like the seminary is a juridic person, we'll get into all of that. Um, uh, juridic acts, the power of governance, uh, who actually is allowed to do things in the church, um, uh, who can, who, well, 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 we'll get into that. Ecclesiastical offices, um, if somebody's made a pastor and so forth, uh, the con uh, prescription, uh, how long a, a law runs, and the, and the computation of time. Uh, so we're gonna get all, into all that as quickly as we can as a foundation for everything else. Uh, then, uh, so that's book one, the general norms, okay? Um, book two, you will, uh, uh, unless you really have a, a mind for law in particular, um, and really get into general norms and things, which is, it's interesting in its own right, but most people find book two instantly much more interesting because it gets into um, the whole topic that I mentioned already, that the people of God, right? Um, and uh, part one uh, begins with the, uh, uh, all of the Christian faithful, right? Um, um, it, it, it starts off with, with the general obligations of rights of all the Christian faithful. Then, as I mentioned earlier, then the first division of the faithful is lay Christians, right? They come number one. Then come sacred ministers or clerics. Um, then we'll get into other things as, as well. We don't have to look at all that now. Um, and the um, and then we'll get into the hierarchical constitution of the church. Uh, which is good for, uh, interesting for people like ourselves who are just church nerds and rich to go into So 
you know, the role that pope, bishops, priests, deacons, you know, all, all these, so forth. Um, then, um, and things like synods and councils and and all these things. And we'll get down to uh, you know, actual, actual parishes and pastors and all that other stuff. Then the, the, the third section of book two is uh, is about religious and, and religious type groups like institutes of consecrated life and societies of apostolic life, which we will not cover because um, we just can't cover everything. It's not something that we're, we are directly involved with most of the time. Um, so that that's uh, we're going to focus on those in particular, and then uh, we'll see. We're going to skip book three, which is a fascinating book. That's the teaching office of the church, the ministry of the word. Um, who's allowed to preach? What are the qualifications for preaching? Um, catechetical instruction. Uh, who can? Who's allowed to speak in the name of the church? Catholic education. All these things. Uh, we won't get into that. We don't have time for that. Um, then we will get into book four. The sanctifying function of the church. We'll get into this um, a little bit um, in in general, and then we'll focus on marriage. So um, uh, we'll get in a little bit into the introductory canons, the introductory canons on the sacraments. Uh, we will look fairly briefly at baptism because, as as deacons uh, especially, and uh, whatever Jackie will end up doing in the parish, will probably be involved with baptisms. Um, and, um, and uh, baptisms, basically, uh, maybe confirmation a little bit. Um, and then we're going to skip the Eucharist because uh, you'll get that in other courses. Um, and we will go right to uh, marriage. And we'll spend uh, the, a good part of this course, uh, probably about a third of this course, on, uh, on marriage and what we need to do for that. Because that's, as deacons especially, lay people helping out in parishes, wherever, uh, that's an area where you can be uh, of enormous assistance to, to, to pastors and other priests. Um, also baptisms for that matter, uh, but baptisms are easier. Uh, weddings are really a lot of work. You really have to know what you're doing. So we're gonna focus on that very, very much. Okay, um, then um, just for your information, that book, this is, we're still in book four, the Sanctifying Office of the Church. So we get into uh, other acts of divine worship, like the Liturgy of the Hours and things like that. Funerals, veneration of the saints and sacred images and all these things. Uh, sacred places and times, so churches and oratories and so forth. Sacred times, feast days, days of penance and all of that. Right? Book five is a very important uh, book, um, especially now with parishes closing and this, that, and the other thing. But uh, it's, it's the book on the temporal goods of the church. We don't have time to get into it, unfortunately. Uh, you will be involved with it yourselves because chances are uh, there'll be a parish near you or maybe a parish where you are that's going to be uh, closed, merged, uh, whatever, you know, so um, a lot of these things happen. But just in general, temporal goods of the church, um, what happens if, uh, if the, uh, the pastor wants to sell off the old convent because nobody's living there, you know? You're alienating church property. There are all sorts of laws connected with that. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into those in this, in this course, but, but uh, it's important to follow canon law. In my own um, parish where I was pastor, um, and where I'm still helping out on weekends, the, the Redemptorists, I mentioned this to you, I think, the Redemptorists founded the parish, they still own the rectory. You know, They don't own the rest of the parish. They don't own the church or the parking lot or anything, but they own the rectory. Um, and so they're giving us a really, really hard time. You know, um, They basically want to kick us out 
uh, and sell it for millions of dollars and you know whatever they think they can make a killing uh, uh, selling this off. The only problem with that is if they sell off the rectory, then uh, the, the the new administrator has moved into the rectory in the neighboring parish um, where he is also administrator. So uh, that's not a problem in terms of his living. Um, but what happens to the um, uh, to the Legion of Mary? <laughs> what happens to the Charismatic Prayer Group? What happens to uh, religious education? Uh, where's the secretary going to go? Where's the receptionist going to go? Uh, where are you going to have any kind of meetings of anything? Um, you know, all these normal parish activities. You know, um, the lower church uh, isn't available because the redemptorists are keeping that. Uh, somehow, there's some kind of agreement. They keep it for themselves, and that's where they, they buried a lot of their dead. So we can't use the lower church for anything, you know? So um, they really have this over a barrel, you know? Well, um, and, they, and they're, they're really, it's really highway robbery. You know? We're paying a lot of rent to them as it is, and then they want to kick us out and sell it and so forth. Um, and so I go to these meetings, and they're making all these demands, and, and people from the archdiocese are saying, yes, 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 yes. But I say to the guys from the archdiocese, but you know canon law doesn't allow this. <laughs> you know, because um, if, if a re religious community is going to sell off something of a certain value, um, they, they have to prove to the satisfaction of the congregation for religious in Rome that this is not going to damage the church, the Catholic church, you know, in some way. But it will, because it will, it will, it will, uh, it will, uh, um, inflict grave harm in a parish, you know? So, um, so that's kind of our, you know, ace up the sleeve, you know? Um, uh, because ultimately, I think, they can do what they want, but then, then Rome will say, but you can't, you're gonna destroy this parish, you know? So they're gonna have to come to some other accommodation. We'll see, I don't know. So, um, so Rome has the final say then? It does, and that's something nobody's paying attention to, you know? So um, with all of these things, and again, we don't have time to get into this in this, uh, in this course, but um, don't forget, canon law exists to protect people's rights. And I think uh, you are all aware of um, how people are aware that their rights are, uh, they feel their rights are being violated when suddenly their, their parish is going to be closed or merged or something like that, and they get very upset, right? And they have rights. They have, they have uh, the right of appeal of these things and so forth. You know? um, and sometimes decisions of bishops have been overturned uh, because people appeal them. So, um, uh, and again, the operating, in this, in this kind of uh, scenario, the operating uh, uh, consideration is, um, is this gonna do uh, serious harm to the church? You know, not the parish in particular, but the Catholic church, you know? Um, and there are, other, uh, there, there are other considerations at work as well, but we don't have time to get into that now, but just so you're aware that, um, it's a complicated business, and when the church is selling something or getting rid of something or closing something or merging something, it's not just a matter of civil lawyers, it's a matter of canon law as well. And some bishops have gotten themselves in trouble because they ignored canon law. Um, that's book five. And speaking of getting oneself in trouble because they ignored canon law, we get to, to book six, which is all about sanctions in the church, which is all about uh, penal law, about crimes and penalties. Right? Um, and uh, again, this is something we don't have time to get into in this course. Um, who do you take uh, penance with? Sacrament of penance. 
No, we have we don't have yeah. courses in sacraments. We haven't had. You don't have a course in sacraments? No. no. Uh-huh. Well, okay. Sure. That, actually, no. We we did. We we covered the sacraments in uh, liturgy last semester during the summer. We didn't take liturgy yet. We're we taking it now. Oh, you're taking, you are taking it? Yeah, we're taking it Oh, now. okay. All right, so the last course. one we're taking now. Okay. Right. Yeah, the Bridgeport candidates, most of us took it over the summer. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah. Now, um, now for, for the, the seminarians uh, who, are, who are studying penance, because they're going to hear confessions, they have to know all about, uh, about crimes and penalties uh, very, uh, very clearly, you know. Uh, you might not yourselves get too much of that because you're not usually involved with uh, lifting excommunications and things like that. You know? So you thank God for that. That's not part of what deacons have to do. That's a real pain in the life. So, um, but anyway, so you have a whole book, book six, on sanctions of the church, and it was just rewritten. And so this, this is a new edition of the Code of Canon Law that I got about a year ago, and now it's already outdated because they just revised uh, this whole book, book six, sanctions of the church. So it's uh, you know if you get uh, you get excommunicated for um, um, uh, for um, being a necessary cooperator in in a procured abortion, right? Um, you get uh, excommunicated for physically attacking the Holy Father, you know, you, um, um, you know all, all sorts of uh, crimes and penalties. Right? Um, then book seven is about processes, basically mostly trials, okay. And this applies in a particular way to annulments, so-called annulments. That's a misnomer, the word annulment. We'll get into that later in the course. But the whole process for annulments is basically, uh, uh, it basically stems from, is based on um, book seven of in the Code of Canada Law about, about trials. Um, and it, it even has a special section um, for uh, marriage processes. Um, and we'll get into we'll get into that at the, the end of the course. So um, so that's the construction of the Code of Canada Law. It's, it's seven books, and we're going to focus on um, basically parts of three books, right? The first, second, uh, first book, second book, and the fourth book. Okay. Uh, for the rest, you run your own. <laughs> but just know you you have this. Uh, if something comes up, you can consult it. You can consult me. You can consult other canon lawyers. There's help available, you know, for, for situations to come up. Okay. Um, so without further ado, um, let's go, uh, if we go back to um, the table of contents, uh, just to take a, a, a look at it, at it again for book one, okay? So this is the first 203 canons. I'm not going to go into every canon, skip parts of this. Um, but parts of it are very important. So you have the way it's divided, right? You have um, all these different uh, titles and, ch- and chapters within the titles, right? So you have um, 11 titles in this, uh, in this book, book one, right? And first is the introduction, um, uh, and then uh, that's the first six canons, right? Then title one is ecclesiastical laws, you know, um, just very briefly, ecclesiastical laws 
are man-made laws as, as opposed to uh, divine laws, right? Um, and we'll get into all that. The ecclesiastical laws. Because by and large, that's what this code of canon law covers. Uh, then uh, we'll get a little bit into, into custom. Uh, we have four canons on that. Um, uh, then uh, we'll get into that. So that's Title Two. Then Title Three is general decrees and instructions. So uh, we're talking about somebody who has the, the power of governance. Somebody who has the power to um, uh, to, to um, promulgate laws. And um, general decrees and instructions are just what they say. There, there would be something given for a whole group of people as opposed to a particular, a singular administrative act for one person or one small group, or one big group. But general decrees that the, um, there could be a general decree for a whole diocese, there could be a general decree for the whole world, you know? Um, the, uh, in the Midnight Mass and Christmas in St. Luke's Gospel, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be, should, um, uh, should, should be uh, sent, should have a census, right? We census the whole world. So that's, that's a general decree that went out to the whole world. Right? So often there's a general decree that comes from Rome. Right? General decrees and instructions. We'll get into all of this. Then singular administrative acts. So this is involving individuals or particular groups. Uh, and this is Title Four now. So common norms, singular decrees and precepts, um, rescripts. Um, we'll get into all, the, all these things. Mean privileges. Dispensation. Important you know what you know what these things are. Um, then uh, Title V will skip statutes and rules of order. You know, that's pretty self-evident for our purposes. Title VI, uh, physical and juridic persons, two different types of persons. Every one of us is a physical person with rights and responsibilities in the church. Seminary itself is a juridic person. You know, um, the diocese of Bridgeport is a juridic person. Okay, um, uh, then juridic acts, what, what, what makes uh, an act uh, valid uh, in, in canon law. And the power of governance, uh, which is a vexed topic now, um, has been for several uh, decades. Uh, who actually has power in the church? And you know, why, why do all those bishops have power and why don't I have power? And how come the priest can, can, has power that I don't have? You know, um, what, what's that all about, the power of governance? Um, that's Title Eight and Title Nine, ecclesiastical offices, um, like being a pastor or something like that, or a judge in a tribunal, whatever it might be. So, um, and how, how they, they, they're provided for, how they're given to people, um, and how they are involved. Right? Uh, prescription, just very briefly, um, if at all, uh, prescription is, is is how how long a, a law continues to, to uh, remain in effect. For instance. How long a period do you have after an alleged incident of sexual abuse? How long do you have um, uh, to report that when 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 the church when, can still act on it? Right. Um, so how how long? That's that's called prescription. How long does that last? Right. We have that in we have that in civil law as well. Prescription. Um, if you want to accuse somebody of um, of, of uh, some kind of a, a sexual abuse. Um, you have a certain period of time in civil law as well, and of course the Child's Victim, the Child Victims Act, um, lifted that uh, that that uh, prescription for um, 
the period first of the year and then a, then a second year, you know, which um, any person who uh, is objective about law in general will say that's absolute BS. You can't you can't do that with laws like that. Prescription exists for a time, you know. So we have all of these people making accusations of, about dead priests uh, and dead bishops, you know. Who is there who, who was around at the time? Who could be a witness and say anything, you know? So it's, um, you know, memories fade. That's why you have prescription in civil law and, and in uh, canon law. But sometimes the prescription can be, uh, uh, can be lifted. Anyway, uh, that's what prescription is. And in computation of time, it's done a little bit differently canonically uh, than it is uh, normally. And we'll, we'll see that just very briefly. Um, all right, so that's what we're going to do now, uh, book one. And so why don't we begin um, with uh, the, the first two canons, beginning on page uh, 47, or rather, I'm sorry, with, uh, beginning on page 49. Um, <coughs> So canon one, here we go. Getting this Codex Juris Canonici. You ready for this great, great beginning? Drum roll, please. Let me do it in Latin. <laughs> Thank you. This is it. We're beginning this great, the, the, the end product of all of these centuries of, of, of uh, ecclesiastical activity and uh, issuing laws and, and and customs and decretals and motu proprios and, uh, and all of these things, and the Corpus Juris Canonici, and the first Codex Juris Canonici, and now the new Codex Juris Canonici, and it begins with Canon 1, Canones Huius Codices Unam Ecclesiam Latinam Respicium. Her Christum Domini Nostrum Amen. <laughs> so it sounds better in Latin, doesn't it? All it's, all it's, means is the canons of this code concern only the Latin church. <laughs> so kind of a wimpy beginning. But it's important because, um, uh, and you'll, you'll see um, right away, uh, you have all of these other um, um, uh, churches. So, um, and fortunately, and this is one of the, the advantages of having the, um, the American commentary. They explain this now. Um, the, the, Roman, the Latin church, by far the largest Catholic church, but there are other Catholic churches that all make up the one Catholic church under the Pope, right? Um, and you're familiar with this, right? I hope you are. Yeah. Um, so we have, uh, the Roman Catholic church consists, as, it, as um, our commentary tells us, consists of 22 autonomous sui juris churches. That's important, an important term, uh, autonomous sui juris of its of its own uh, of its own right. Okay, um, you have all this, right? So sui juris. A church sui juris is a church that has its own right. So you have, we have a list of them. Um, <clears throat> we have um, 
So there are 20, uh, if, you, if you look at this uh, list they have on, in column, the second column on page 49, it's, um, it's, it's a great little summary they have there. So you have, um, you have one, um, you have the Latin church, but then you have 21 Eastern churches sui juris of their own right. That, their own right means they have their own liturgical rites, R-I-T-E-S. They have their own laws, they have their own history, they have their own spirituality, uh, their, their, own, their own way of doing things, right? Um, so there are 21 of those. And, and they all observe, each one of those 21 observes one of the five different liturgical rites, the Eastern liturgical rites. So um, you have all these different rites. The one that's familiar to most of us, I'm sure, is the Byzantine rite, right? So if you look at number three there, the Byzantine rite is observed by all of these different um, uh, Eastern rite churches. Now these are Catholic churches, right? We're not talking about Orthodox churches, right? Orthodox churches split away from Rome. We're talking about Eastern rite churches that are in union with Rome and trace their origins, like the Orthodox, they trace their origins back to the apostles, right? So the number three, the Byzantine rite, is observed by all these different churches, the Albanian bio Bielorussian, Bulgarian, Greek, Italo-Albanian, Yugoslavian, Melkite, Romanian, Russian, Ruthenian, Slovakian, Ukrainian, and Hungarian churches. They all observe the Byzantine rite. Probably um, most of us are familiar with uh, the Ukrainian church, I would think. Um, then where, uh, where I was pastor, uh, there, were, there were and still are a good number of Ukrainians. And one day, um, just as we were beginning to open tentatively after um, COVID, I was walking around, and we hadn't started our Saturday evening masses yet. Uh, I was walking around, and on 7th Street, which is not very far from uh, the parish where I was, um, I found this, this beautiful uh, Ukrainian Catholic church. Uh, it looked like it was all locked up, but I tried the door and found it was open. And I walked in, and it was heaven. <laughs> it was heaven, because uh, uh, it was, it was uh, I'm sure for them, it was a simple Saturday evening mass. But first of all, I was so touched by the devotion of the people, a good number of people there, a good number of young people, all kneeling, all praying, very, very attentive. Priest had, I think, gold vestments on, was chanting, and he had a cantor, and there was incense, and it was just glorious, you know? Um, the, uh, so the Ukrainian uh, church, but also uh, Ruthenians, probably you've heard of Ruthenians, maybe you know some Ruthenians, um, and, and others as well. All of those churches observe the Byzantine rite, so the Byzantine rite is a, is a liturgical rite. It's observed by all of these churches that have, um, uh, that, that are churches sui juris, okay? Um, with their, um, uh, the, of, their, of their own, of their own rite. And, um, then, then the others, okay, there's the Alexandrian rite observed by the Coptic, Coptic church, the Ethiopian church, the Antiochian rite observed by the Malankar Maronite and Syrian churches, the Chaldean rite, observed by the Chaldean and Malabar churches and the Armenian rite, observed by the Armenian church. There's an Armenian church, um, I don't know whether it's, it's um, Catholic or Orthodox, I have a feeling it's Orthodox, but in any case, there's an Ar Armenian church not far from St. Agnes where I used to help out in midtown Manhattan, it's down, like Second Avenue going down around 30 something street. So anyway, so what's in here by and large uh, applies to the to the Latin church and not to the Eastern Rite churches, right? Uh, that, which is why 
you might want to invest in a copy of the um, the Eastern Eastern Right um, the Eastern Code. You might uh, don't necessarily you don't have to for this course, but you might want to depending on uh, how many people live in your um, of Eastern Rights live in your in your area live in your parish, because a lot of people from the Eastern Rights will um, will go to regular Catholic churches, you know, and vice versa. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of Roman Catholics who go to that um, um, uh, that Ukrainian church that I stopped in because it's so beautiful. There was a Russian Catholic uh, church community that used to meet in a little room at Old St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, down in, again, down in my, my area down there. Um, this is in, now in Soho. Uh, I remember they used to meet there on Saturday evenings for solemn vespers. Russian Catholic church, right? And a lot of Catholics uh, would go to that because it was so beautiful. And especially a couple of decades ago, there was a choice between that or some god awful guitar thing going on somewhere, so um, they preferred the Eastern Rite. So, um, um, so anyway, just just to be aware of that, the, the 21 Eastern churches have their own um, uh, have their own law, and they're called churches sui juris of their of their own of their own law. Canon two comes as a great relief to canon lawyers everywhere. For the most part, the code does not define the rights. We're talking about liturgical rites, which must be observed in celebrating liturgical actions. Therefore, liturgical uh, laws enforced until now retain their force unless one of them is contrary to the canons of the code. So if you want to know about liturgical rites, go to Father Ernest. I, <laughs> I'm Pontius Pilate. I wash my hands. I have nothing to do with liturgical law. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, um, However, there are times when uh, when the code itself will um, uh, will will regulate certain aspects of the liturgy. You know, um, it'll say, for instance, that you have to have real water for uh, a baptism. You know, um, things like that. You know, um, uh, but but mostly liturgical laws you find elsewhere. Okay? Um, uh, don't worry about canon three. Oh yeah, as we go through this. Uh, you can happily uh, mark canons that you don't need to worry about, okay? So the first canon you don't need to worry about is canon three. You're not going to have to do canon three. Uh, don't worry about canon four, because uh, we, we just can't get into all these things. Canon five, we'll read it once, and then we're going to, uh, you can mull it over for next week, because um, it's kind of complicated. This is about customer, and I've been telling you that custom is very, very important when it comes to um, to law evolving. So universal or particular customs presently enforced which are contrary to the prescription of these canons and are reprobated by the canons of this code are absolutely suppressed, excuse me, and are not permitted to revive in the future. Other contrary customs are also considered suppressed unless the code expressly provides otherwise or unless they are centenary or memorial customs which can be tolerated if in the judgment of the ordinary they cannot be removed due to the circumstances of places in person. Universal particular customs beyond the law, prayer use, which are enforced until now are preserved. I'm not going to require that you know that in detail, but if you get the, the basic idea behind it, okay, um, that if, um, if a law, if a custom is contrary to what's in the 
the code of Canada law. So typically, this is a, a custom that would have been there when this code of Canada law came into being in 1983. Maybe not, maybe it came into being since then, people aren't aware of things. But, uh, but if it's contrary to what the canons here say, if it's contrary to them and it's specifically reprobated by the canon, in other words, the canon says, you know, you must do X and you may not do Y. X is the opposite of Y. Um, and it says you must do X, you may not do Y. Then forget about it, according to this uh, canon. If, it's, um, if it says you must do X, and X is the opposite of Y, but it doesn't say you may not do Y, <laughs> then it tells us um, um, uh, it's, it's basically suppressed unless the code expressly provides otherwise, or unless there are centenary or immemorial customs which can be tolerated. In other words, they're at least 100 years old, or they're, they're, um, uh, they're so old that the oldest person in the community can't remember a time when they didn't exist. Uh, if that's the case, um, they could possibly be tolerated. But we'll get into that in more detail next time. Um, again, you don't need to know that in a lot of detail, but we'll get that kind of get the gist of it. Good. Thank you all. So we'll be reading now the commentaries on these things. So you understand what's going on.